Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hello. So in uh, just a little while, you're going to hear a conversation between me and U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal about the current state of White House noncompliance and how it's showing up on a whole bunch of different fronts all at once. We will also have a conversation uh, about whether it's good to lionize some of these young people who are now standing up in school shooting situations and trying to tackle the shooter. Uh, We'll also talk about some moon rocks, which we've had for 50 years, but we've been saving them to look at. We're going to look at them I mean, we're not. I'm not looking at the moon. Somebody's looking at the moon rocks, and we'll tell you why and what uh, could be learned from these moon rocks, which have been carefully placed under seal since they got back uh, 50 years ago. Okay. So before we do that, I just want to say, you know, last night was a confusing night on social media, particularly as the clock ticked towards midnight. So you had two groups of very excited people. One group had been watching the penultimate episode, the fiery, I won't tell you anything about it, penultimate episode of Game of Thrones. And then another group had been watching the seventh game of an NBA playoff series involving the Philadelphia 76ers and the Toronto Raptors. So that one ended with a a 90 to 90 tie and and with like 4.2 seconds or something left on the clock, um, Toronto had the ball and and, uh, Kawhi Leonard, one of their, maybe their biggest star, um, got the ball, uh, managed to dribble into a corner and with one of the big Philadelphia players hanging in the air in front of him, just launched this ball up. It bounced once high off the rim and then bounced three more times and then went through, and it turned out Toronto won. Here's what that sounded like. you got to be aware of the inbounder here if you're Philly. It's off to Leonard, defended by Simmons. Is this the dagger? A lot of yelling. So the thing was, so as you can imagine, NBA fans in general, and of course Toronto fans in particular, they're really excited about this on Twitter. And they had been using right along the hashtag WeTheNorth, which sounds kind of Game game of Thronesy. And then there's Kawhi. Like if you don't know who Kawhi is, and it's K-A-W-H-I, and that could be kind of a Game of Thrones name, too. So people who didn't watch, who were not watchers of Game of Thrones or NBA basketball were seeing all these excited posts and were very confused about it. And and the confusion extended even to conversation. One woman reported talking to her husband for several minutes about Kawhi before she realized he was not discussing a piano with her. So what does that prove? Well, I think it proves we live in a world full of drama, but not that much clarity. We're not even sure that we're all experiencing the same drama. <clears throat> and speaking of drama, well, let's get the show going. We begin the show today with what just seems to be an ongoing, never-ending on-ramp to a constitutional crisis uh, as the White House refuses all kinds of fact-finding inquiries and subpoenas uh, from Congress. Joining us right now uh, is Senator Richard Blumenthal from here in Connecticut. Uh, First of all, thanks for making the time in a busy day. 
Thank you. Great to be with you. Um, I just want to run through a few of these that I, I know you're just completely um, on top of all of them and just sort of kind of get your take on, on where they're headed. It seems to me that one of the ones that falls a little bit outside the umbrella uh, of, of executive privilege and White House privilege is the fact that uh, Senate Intelligence Chair Richard Burr, who is a Republican, we should emphasize, has subpoenaed Don, uh, Donald Trump Jr. This seems a little different, right? I mean, he's not part of the White House. This executive privilege uh, claim would not seem to apply. So what happens if he won't cooperate? He has no executive privilege, which applies only to presidential advisors and members of the White House staff, Mm -hmm. because it's supposed to protect confidential communications so the president can rely on the advice of his advisors. Well, Donald Trump Jr., is the president's son, but there's no presidential son privilege, nor is there any lawyer-client privilege for him. He can claim the Fifth Amendment privilege, but he must appear before the committee to do it. And that's why this subpoena really must be enforced. If he fails to come to Congress, he'll be cited for contempt, and that's enforceable through the courts, which is the way it should happen. Um, you saw his Judiciary Committee testimony. You do think there are some legitimate lines of inquiry? There are very legitimate lines of inquiry about the truthfulness of his Judiciary Committee appearance. I attended it. I watched him and heard him. And there are some very, very questionable statements that he made, potentially deceptive and misleading. But also, he knows a lot about the Russian attempt to interfere with these elections. And that interference is ongoing. As the intelligence community has told us, unanimously, all of the intelligence agencies say the Russians are continuing their attack. If anything, 2016 was a dress rehearsal for the main show this next election in 2020. And Donald Trump Jr. met with Russian agents after he was told they had dirt on Hillary Clinton. He said, if it's what you tell me, I love it. He was involved in briefings on the Moscow-Trump Tower negotiations, which the president denied having. He knows a lot about the WikiLeaks release of hacked emails stolen from the DNC and the Clinton campaign. In other words, he should be appearing voluntarily, in fact, eagerly, to help forestall Russian interference and attacks in the future. And make no mistake, it is an intelligence function that properly is before the Intelligence Committee of the United States Senate. All right, I'm going to jump to another lily pad, see how many I can get to before you have to go. Um, Secretary of the Treasury Mnuchin uh, is defying a request to furnish tax returns. There's there's legislative le- legislative language about this, right, that the, the Treasury shall furnish uh, information to Congress. Shall furnish seems kind of unambiguous and not like a situation where you could pick and choose. That's absolutely right. The language is crystal clear. There's no room for interpretation. The Republican cabinet member, Secretary Mnuchin, is, by the way, not the official who is charged with providing this information. It's the commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service who has bucked it up to his superior. And they're saying, well, it's political. That's not a defense to 
the right of Congress to subpoena this information, which is statutorily uh, absolutely clear. And so they are simply stonewalling and stiff-arming the United States Congress, which has an Article One constitutional responsibility here. And once again, they are trying to slow walk this process, run out the clock, and refuse to comply with lawful requests for information. That's all that's at stake here, information about the president's tax returns, which every other president, as we well know by now, mm-hmm. in recent history has provided voluntarily. All right. New lily pad. Uh, one of the areas where the White House is asserting executive privilege is over uh, Counsel McGahn, Donald McGahn, which is a little weird because he's already testified about all these matters to Robert Mueller. Right. Typically, if you're going to ex- assert privilege and, and withhold testimony, you do it from the get go. So is that horse kind of out of the barn in a different way from some of the other claims of privilege? That horse is out of the barn because the executive privilege, if it ever existed, and probably did not, for testimony about criminal activity, has already been waived. And Don McGahn now is a private citizen. He's talked to the special counsel for 30 hours. He's provided documents. If the president wanted to invoke that executive privilege, he could and should have done it before now. In fact, he's boasted. Remember, he very, very proudly proclaimed that he has cooperated fully by waiving the executive privilege. Now he's seeking to invoke it after the fact, after it's been waived. So again, legally, there's no leg to stand on here, but they're going to run out the clock and try to use the courts as a delaying tactic. Don McGahn hopefully wants to do the right thing and will appear before the congressional committee. Congress has an oversight function here. And it's not only about holding the president accountable, that's a valid cause, but also forestalling a continuing Russian effort to interfere with our elections. And that is a priority for me on the Judiciary Committee, also as a member of the Armed Services Committee, and it is for the United States Congress on both the House and the Senate sides. So, uh, new lily pad, uh, but related to what you just said, in in that capacity, uh, wanting to know about Russian interference, Congress wants the full Mueller report. Attorney General says, uh, Barr says, no. So where does this go? Where it goes again, the courts. Mm -hmm. Because uh, William Barr is trying to prevent Congress from seeing all of the fact-finding and evidence that underlies the report and all of the material that has been redacted. Now, make no mistake, grand jury material protected under so-called 6E of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure. There has to be a petition to the court. William Barr has refused to make that petition. He's been derelict in his duty. He has no good reason for refusing to provide the full report and seeking whatever orders are necessary from the court to make that information available. We all the time see confidential and classified material. We have a procedure for doing it in the Congress. Some of it even more sensitive and potentially damaging than this report, but certainly as a matter of oversight, Congress and eventually the American people deserve to see the full report. That's why I introduced legislation. It was bipartisan. 
mm-hmm. with Senator Grassley of Iowa to require that the report be provided in full without redactions. So far, the legislation hasn't passed. Barr has stiff-armed us, but we need to see the full report. Um, when you're trying to fall asleep at night, do you ever worry that there's a danger that Congress goes to court on some of this stuff, some of this area, areas of total non-cooperation and recalcitrance loses and then creates precedent that expands the presidential power even more than it exists now? In other words, if you lose any of these court actions, you've got an even more imperial presidency. Great question, Con, because you're reference to the imperial presidency is exactly what I really fear. The checks and balances are going by the wayside, even as we watch it in real time. The president has a notion of executive power that is in the vein of the imperial presidency, and that's William Barr's view as well. But there is some precedent existing already. There's a Supreme Court case, and everybody by now is pretty familiar with it. It is the Nixon tapes case. The United States Supreme Court decided by a 9-0 unanimous majority that Nixon had to provide those secret tapes. It completely rejected his notion of executive privilege as a reason for refusing to provide that information, and said, in effect, this broad claim of executive privilege has no constitutional basis. In fact, as we well know, there's nothing in the Constitution that talks about executive privilege. It's a fairly recent invention, and it is in its breadth of claim by this president completely unfounded. So I worry about it, but I still believe in the rule of law. I trust the Constitution. And ultimately, we have to trust our federal judiciary to get it right. I believe when this period in our history is over, the true heroes will be the independent judiciary and our free press, because we know so much more as a result of the press's reporting than we would otherwise. So you mentioned, Nixon, in that case, uh, the move to impeachment basically put Congress's fact-finding powers on steroids because refusal to cooperate with a subpoena can then become an article of impeachment. Uh, I'm sure you're aware that Speaker Pelosi has a concern or maybe even a theory that this is what President Trump wants, that he thinks that Congress is going to get frustrated, going to realize that that they could try to do more by moving towards impeachment and then using a non- cooperation as an article of impeachment, and that that's a political disaster for Congress. What's your response to all that? There is a theory and argument made, I think, by Speaker Pelosi, among others, that the rush toward impeachment actually helps Donald Trump. He has been, in effect, daring Congress to jump into that boat. There have to be hearings and fact-finding, just as there was in Watergate, to build a case and take that case to the American people. Very few Americans have read the full Mueller report. I've read it a couple of times, and as I ask around Connecticut, I come home every weekend to restore my sanity. <laughs> what, <laughs> what's in the Mueller report? Have you read it? Very few Americans have read it. That's why we need 
to put on the stand before Congress people like Don McGahn and William Barr and Mueller himself and his team and others so the American people see it and hear it for themselves, have the voices and faces that are meaningful to them. Judge how the president obstructed justice. There are 10 separate incidents and episodes in that Mueller report world. The elements of obstruction are laid out clearly, and how the Trump campaign welcomed and eagerly accepted help from the Russians that was against Hillary Clinton and in favor of the Trump campaign. And I come back to this point, and I apologize for repeating it. The Russians are doing it again. They are attacking our democracy. They are spreading disinformation, sowing discord, seeking to create distrust, suppressing the vote. It's all part of Vladimir Putin's strategy to undermine democracies. Here and in Western Europe, there's an article today, a very good one in the New York Times about it. I think it may be on the front page how this Russian campaign is very cost effective. Jim Comey said the other night during that CNN uh, town hall, he said about Vladimir Putin's interference in the 2016 election. It was successful beyond his wildest dreams. And that is absolutely true. For what he paid to undermine our democracy, he got great results for Russia. But we need to be on guard now going into this next election. All right. This is a charge that you've been leading, uh, and that is a charge uh, to use a lawsuit uh, to look into the the private business activities of uh, President Trump and to the degree to which they uh, violate the provision against emoluments. You got a a pretty important ruling recently uh, from a U.S. district judge about how that suit can go forward. Uh, Bring people up to date real quickly on that. Absolutely. Uh, Great question, and thank you. The lawsuit that I have filed, along with 200 of my colleagues in Congress, essentially says Donald Trump is blatantly and brazenly violating the chief anti-corruption provision in the United States Constitution. It's known as the Emoluments Clause. It dates to the founding of our republic because the framers were so concerned about big powers like Britain and France trying to corrupt our public officials. They said, No president, no employee of the executive branch, no matter top to bottom, can accept any payment or benefit from a foreign power without consent of Congress. Well, we know Donald Trump is accepting payments on condos in New York, rental payments at the Trump Towers, payments for rooms in the Trump hotels, all from Saudi Arabia, from other countries around the world. There were Trump Tower negotiations. These payments and benefits, we know about them because of reporting by the press, are a violation of that emoluments clause. And we have received two profoundly significant rulings from the court in our lawsuit. The first says members of Congress have standing to bring this lawsuit. And the second, just about 10 days or a couple of weeks ago, said all these payments and benefits actually fit the definition of emolument. Emolument is a strange word to most people. Frankly, it was even to me before I brought this lawsuit a couple of years ago. But 
it means those payments and benefits that the president's receiving from foreign powers are potentially a violation of that provision of the Constitution. So we've made some success. No doubt the government will appeal. The government represents Donald Trump. The Department of Justice is representing him. But I think we can get discovery. We can get the documents and evidence. I hope beginning right away. But eventually we will lay clear all of what Donald Trump has been doing in violation of the Emoluments Clause of the United States Constitution. Right. The discovery process uh, could lead to, I mean, there's some things that you know that you know, but there are some other things in Donald Rumsfeld's terms that you don't know. You don't know what what you don't know. And that would probably include other payments that just haven't become part of any public record. We don't know what we don't know. He's absolutely right. What we do know is a lot of the broad outlines. We know, for example, he's doing business. His Trump company the development company is doing business in Indonesia and other parts of the world. We don't know the details. But remember, Donald Trump, unlike his all his recent predecessors, has refused to divest himself. He continues to be an owner of the Trump organization. He says he's assigned management responsibilities to his two sons. He continues to own all of these properties. So President Bush, both George H.W. and the most recent President Bush, President Clinton, President Obama, all of recent presidents have, in effect, sold all of their private holdings and they've put it into blind trust. Donald Trump refused to do so. And that's the key to his violation of this clause. So a lot of it we don't know, but we know enough to know he has certainly violated this clause of the United States Constitution. Well, Senator Richard Blumenthal, I certainly know that you've been generous with your time on a busy day. Uh, thanks for uh, carving out a little time to talk to me. Wonderful to talk. I'm on my way back to Washington, D.C., and uh, hopefully I'll be back next uh, Thursday or Friday. All right. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Take care. Absolute control. I think most of us, when we read about any kind of mass shooting, uh, imagine ourselves there on the scene and wonder what we would do. And I think increasingly, particularly as these mass shootings um, have such high body counts, we think, oh, well, maybe I would try to do something. Maybe I would try to stop this person because it seems as though if you don't, you know, there's an awful lot of people wind up dead. Um, well, recently, uh, particularly in school rooms and college classrooms, we're starting to see something like that happen. So Kendrick Castillo, an 18-year-old senior at the STEM school of Highlands Ranch in Colorado, was killed last week while lunging for a school shooter who had already wounded eight people. Uh, the week before that, 21-year-old Riley Howell was killed by a gunman he still managed to uh, tackle and, and incapacitate at the University of North Carolina in Charlotte. Um, both of these uh, uh, people, both of these men, young men, um, 
pretty much definitely saved lives, saved some of the lives around them while they did that. So there's an argument for making them into heroes. That's kind of what the media has been doing. But should the media be doing this? Uh, are we, in fact, encouraging dangerous behavior rather than safe behavior? Uh, several journalists have looked at this recently, including Peter Weber, senior editor for The Week, uh, his main ninth piece for The Week, asked that question. Is it dangerous to lionize these young heroes uh, in recent school shootings? Uh, Peter Weber, welcome to our conversation. Thank you. So just to begin, this is certainly worth talking about, although... I think ultimately, I mean, sort of lionizing heroes is uh, those are two words that are almost inseparable, right? I mean, when somebody does something heroic, it's not it's not quite analogous to not naming the shooter because you don't want to glamorize uh, that kind of behavior or encourage other people to to imitate uh, the behavior of a shooter, right? Right. No. It, it's. I, I mean, I first of all, I I think we should be pretty clear these these kids are heroes mm -hmm. right i mean they they sacrifice themselves to save the lives of of their friends and people they don't know that's kind of the textbook definition um the the lionizing is is a potential problem and this is this is emotionally a hard argument to make mm -hmm. right i mean right we 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 valorize heroes that that's what we do and and we need heroes we need people to remind us that we have better angels that we can that we can do things that are selfless. And so um, I guess that's, that's kind of a counter-argument or the, the easy argument to make. Right. right? So let's, let's make the right. hard argument. That's <laughs> right. So the hard argument is there's a, there's a growing body of work that, that the mass shootings and, and school shootings are, there's a contagion effect, right? There is, uh, they, they tend to cluster together. There is a 2015 study, I think, which shows that in a highly publicized mass shooting, there is more likely to be another mass shooting in, within 13 days, like a statistically significant um, increase in likelihood. Uh, so the studies have so far focused on the mass killing because on the, on the shooters themselves, mm -hmm. right? Because the media has, for 20 years, up until recently, uh, focused on the killers themselves more than the victims. Um, and recently there has been, uh, it's actually, I, I think, sort of the federal recommendations now that we we don't talk about the killers. Mm -hmm. Right? There's uh, the No Notoriety campaign. Um, and And the idea is that Talking about the killers encourages other killers. Right. Right. Um, the, the possible effect of, uh, of lionizing these heroes is that we'll have kind of the same sort of contagion effect to encourage or to make it seem like that is the normal thing you should do when you're in a, um, a school shooting situation specifically. Right. It, right. Seems, it uh, seems to me that there's, there's uh, several problems here. One of them is that it's a very small sample size. So what you'd, what you'd want before you 
made this into any kind of incorrigible or even implicitly incorrigible behavior would be a lot of information about what's statistically the difference between situations where students uh, hide and try to get away and try to escape uh, versus students who run towards the, the, the shooter and try to tackle the shooter or whatever. I mean, having two stories about this or even three or four stories, given the unfortunately high number of school shootings, means that, yes, it's pretty easy to find these two incredibly heroic stories. But but if we had a hundred of these situations, you'd want to know how they how they play out, how they come out, depending on what people do, whether people whether students focus on running and hiding or whether students turn the tables. We don't even know yet whether it's overall on balance and effective behavior. Right. So, I mean, the first thing that I, I actually learned with the, the Riley Howell shooting was that it's policy now. It's uh, run, hide, fight. Right. This is what we teach people in active shooter situations. It used to be shelter in place or hide, but they've added fight. And fight is supposed to be the last resort. Right. If you can't do anything else, if you can't run away, if you can't barricade yourself somewhere, if you can't, you, you fight. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so Riley Howell was 21, the, the guy who uh, sacrificed himself at, at UNC Charlotte, and Kendra Castillo was 18. What kind of gave me pause was another student at, at STEM school in Colorado um, went on, on CNN afterward. He, he's a 12-year-old. Right. And, uh, and Peter, a, 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 Peter, just to help out here, we actually have uh, that clip. So uh, here is the uh, 12-year-old student, uh, Ryan Holly, I think is his name, uh, that Peter's talking about. So I have, sen- I have um, some sensitive, I have sensitive ears. So um, they shot out the doors and I heard the gunshots and I just kind of froze. And then the siren came on and our teacher um, and somebody started cracking a joke. And, um, and the teacher told them to shut up, and then she had us hide behind her desk. And when the shooter got closer, she moved us into the closet. Um, I was hiding in the corner, and they were right outside the door. Um, I had my hand on the uh, metal baseball bat, just in case, because hmm. I was going to go down fighting if I was going to go down. I think most people have already seen or heard that clip because particularly that uh, eerie last sentence uh, certainly pulled at people. But, Peter, uh, what you're saying, I think, is, wow, 12 years old is pretty hard, pretty young age to have to even make that calculation. Right. And if a 12-year-old with a baseball bat charged at a shooter, uh, the odds are really small that he would survive. Mm-hmm. Right. And... um I mean, you know, the, the guy in the movies who's like, uh, don't be a hero, kid, is rarely the, the character you remember or, or like. But in the movies, you get to determine who survives. In the movies, sure, like the, the bullet would hit the baseball bat or whatever. In real life, we don't let children enlist in the military, right? We don't let them, we don't let them fight in wars, but... We're, we're putting them in situations where this is where, <laughs> where their, their initial thought is, I'm going to go up against a man with a gun with a baseball bat. Right. And uh, by the way, I get the uh, young man's name wrong. His name is Nate Holly, not Ryan Holly. But, you know, I think the other part of this is, too, that when we begin 
to create this particular class of hero that you know and and uh, either we vil- we'll wind up building um, physical statues for them or simply verbal statues as we talk about them and talk about them in, in, in a very admiring way. The problem with it is, too, it makes it seem like the whole situation is kind of normal and that we can expect uh, that a certain percentage, the percentage of these cases will, will in fact, r- result in some kind of heroic sacrifice by an 18-year-old or a 16-year-old or a, a heroic but useless sacrifice by a 12-year-old. I mean, we're, we're starting to talk about these situations as if they're so normal and so regular that they will create a certain kind of hero that we'll become familiar with. Right. And it will then yeah, create the expectation or create, uh, it will encourage children to do dangerous and, and reckless things. Right. And I mean, I think, think it another way, Peter, too, and, and you've written about this, too. It, it plays into the argument from the other side, right, which is that uh, instead of it being our responsibility as a society to limit access to guns, to do the right kinds of background checks and screaming, screening to get some of these heavily modified, incredibly dangerous weapons off the streets and out of private hands, um, instead of that being our responsibility, it's instead the responsibility of these kids on the scene to do something and possibly lay down their lives. Right. Yeah. It's. It's. I mean, uh, the easiest argument is this is a, a terrible indictment of us. Mm-hmm. Right. It, their bravery stands in naked contrast to our cowardice as a society that we can't find a way to to deal with this. I mean, I've got three young children in grade school down the street, and every time I hear a siren, you know, that's my first thought. Mm-hmm. I, don't think that's, I don't think that's an unusual experience. And I, I, I think the, the response, I was teaching undergraduate college at the time of the Parkland shooting, uh, the Marjorie uh-huh. Stoneman Douglas, and, and my undergraduates, it, this affected them like nothing else uh, during the entire semester. We were there actually working in a political journalism class in a university setting. And even though this wasn't exactly political journalism, so many of them wanted to do projects on this and to write about this. And I think part of the reason is they have seen decades, well, they haven't seen decades, but for the the amount of their life that they've been conscious consumers of news about stories like this, they just see this incredible societal passivity about it that, yeah, it is just this kind of almost exceptional level of loss. It's it's breakage, you know, and, and they were very excited to see people more or less their own age engage in activism at the level of trying to get things changed. But I think part right. of their excitement is we don't do anything except watch a news report about some kid who, you know, laid down his life to try to tackle a shooter. Right. So, I mean, to some extent, my argument is a media argument, right? For a long time, we focused on the killer's out of fascination, out of whatever, morbid, morbid curiosity. Uh, and that was misguided. Uh, I, I think focusing on the heroes is a big improvement. But I, I think we should consider the possible downsides. And I, I mean, I guess if I had a recommendation or advice or a suggestion, it would be to, to keep it local. We mm-hmm. should keep news of the mass killers as local crime stories. You know, it, the public has a right to know, but it, we don't need to make it front news, front page news. We don't need to write profiles of them in, in the, the front page of national newspapers. Those that survive, they should be covered like 
like normal criminals, like right. in the, the local police beat. Heroes should absolutely be valorized, but we don't need to, they should be valorized locally among the people who care about them, the people who love them, the, the community that's affected by them. Right. So, I, th- I think part of the problem, though, is or one of the reasons that the kind of journalism happens that you're talking about is we're kind of wired as human beings for pattern recognition or seeking right. pattern recognition. So we know that we have this problem. Everybody and everybody shares this problem to a certain degree. Parents who have to send their kids to school every day the way you were describing and grandparents of those kids who are being sent to school and the kids themselves. And, and you know, we're all sharing this terrible problem and we're, we're looking at all the details. So when we were examining the shooters, yeah, there was some morbid curiosity, but there's also like, can we see a pattern here? Can we find something here that would maybe help us, help us understand, help us how to help us spot it earlier, that kind of thing? I mean, it's sort of a legitimate activity. And I think looking at these heroes, too, there's pattern recognition like, well, OK, what happens when this happens? What happens when somebody rushes the shooter? What can we extract any useful information? I, I think there's enough fear and legitimate concern on our parts that you can sort of understand why there would be attention paid to all this. Like, what can we learn from each one of these situations? Sure, absolutely. And and there's people who study it. Right. And And they draw conclusions. And and we've learned a lot about the mass shooters, right? Mm -hmm. They tend to be lonely. They tend to want community with with other mass shooters. Sometimes it's a competition. Sometimes it's just uh, probably existential despair. I mean, so, yeah, we, we unfortunately have a large enough body of work with the mass shooters that we can draw common concerns um, or their common profiles. Right. And with the heroes, we have to be careful. We don't have a big body of information. We don't really know, you know, whether that's the most efficacious behavior. Hey, Peter Weber, we're going to have to hold it there. Senior editor for the week, his main ninth piece for the week, asked that question. Is it dangerous to create a new class of heroes? Uh, these uh, incredibly brave, self-sacrificing young people who stand up at uh, school shootings and take on the shooter. We're going to take a break right now, and we're going to come back. We're going to talk about the moon. That's the voice of Doris Day singing about, well, actually the lack of a moon. Our segment here is about the moon. Doris Day, as you probably know, uh, has died at the age of 97. Doris Day was like, I mean, before she became this kind of symbol of ill-advised Eisenhower-era cheeriness, Doris Day was a like, really good singer when she sang with big bands. Uh, I'm often looking around for a certain version of a song, and I'm often rather surprised to find out that in the clearest and best one, the most perfectly executed one, was by Doris Day uh, as she sang early in her big band career. So uh, 
you heard her here. You're going to hear her also on the way out of the show. Uh, it's kind of our last uh, day to say goodbye to Doris Day. Uh, I also want to say before we get into this conversation about the moon that usually right here, Kion Wolf is on explaining who did what, but Kion Wolf is not here today. So uh, Jonathan McPants. Uh, is at the board uh, today. He is uh, in her usual spot. This uh, show was produced by our senior producer, Betsy Kaplan, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Ryan Gosling. Tomorrow, we're going to actually re-air our com- my conversation with Elaine Pagels, the theologian. Uh, she's just an amazing person, went through terrible trials with both the death of her, uh, her husband and her very young son, uh, and that prompted her to think more personally and perhaps on a less scholarly basis about God. And so we wound up having like a full, you know, one hour chat about all this, which if you didn't hear it, you do want to hear it. All right. So now time to talk about the moon. Uh, We all remember 50 years ago uh, as Neil Armstrong got back uh, on the lunar lander. uh, Mission Control said, Neil, did you get the rocks? He said, I forget to get the rocks. And they said, you're going to have to go back out and get the rocks. We need the rocks. Get as many rocks as you can. All right, that's probably not actually true. I may have made that up, but it is true that um, uh, that Armstrong uh, was and Aldrin were charged with coming back with as many rocks as they could. Now, what you might not know is that a lot of those, a certain number of those rocks, were not examined at the time. They were actually preserved in as pristine a condition uh, as possible. Uh, there are some very good reasons for that, and here to explain what those reasons are and what's about to happen now, roughly 50 years later, is Sarah Kaplan, science reporter for the Washington Post. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, so yes, yeah, so those rocks came back uh, a long, long time ago. Uh, and um, it's, it's sort of policy with a lot of stuff. They're doing the same thing, I think, with asteroid samples right now. They're going to bring some of them back and look at them right away. But you save some of them. Why? Because the technology for examining something gets better? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. Um, scientists knew 50 years ago that their successors were going to have tools and questions that they couldn't even imagine at the time these samples were first returned. And so the idea is you put hold some of them back, keep them in reserve. And um, some of these things, experiments that can only be performed once, um, experiments that can only be performed on a sample that has been unchanged by the earthly atmosphere, um, you, you keep hold on to those samples so that future generations um, still have the opportunity to ask those questions. So that's what's happening now. I mean, the Apollo astronauts brought back 850 pounds of moon rocks over the course of six missions. Um, And this is actually a relatively small fraction of them that have been held back in reserve, but we're about to open three of them for the first time. All right. Before we open the three of them, um, uh, let's talk a little bit about what we did, what we have learned. I mean, one of the big questions is, what, what is that moon thing up there? Why is it even there at all? It's sort of the wrong size to be where it is. I mean, one of the, perhaps the most profound question about the moon is, what is it? And so the rocks in the soil have been somewhat helpful already. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, before the Apollo missions, we actually didn't really know where the moon came from. There were all of these theories um, that maybe it uh, was kind of a blob that had been tossed off of the Earth because the Earth was spinning really fast, and the Pacific Ocean is like the scar of that happening. Um, or there's another theory that maybe it was an independent object that was captured by Earth's gravity. Um, but as soon as scientists saw the first Apollo rocks, they realized that none of those theories were correct. Um, And now the theory we have is called the giant impact hypothesis. Um, What we saw when we found Apollo rocks was that they contain very much the same materials that Earth rocks contain. Um, And the only 
potential answer to that was that the moon is actually made out of material from the Earth. Scientists think that about 4.5 billion years ago, so right at the very beginning of our solar system history, this big object mashed into Earth, um, melted the rock, and threw some material into space. And that material recoalesced into what is now the moon. And that's why the moon and the Earth have these very similar chemical fingerprints. Um, but there's still some lingering questions about that theory and um, some bits of evidence that we can't quite fit together. And so that is one of the things that researchers will be exploring on these pristine samples. Right, Sarah, I assume we've uh, thrown out the theory that the moon is an artificial entity created by God, aliens, or human time travelers. And it's not made out of cheese. <laughs> no. I heard that other one on Coast to Coast. That's uh, usually true what they talk about there. So um, so we should say that in, in some respects, um, some of the questions, uh, well, the, the hypothesis that you're talking about is developed somewhat by a geologist named John Wood, and he got mm -hmm. cruel clues from Armstrong's rocks, but not enough, right? It was, in fact, incredibly helpful when a second sample was collected. Yeah, so um, one of the things, so Armstrong kind of famously, at the very, towards the very end of his moon rock walk, he was collecting rock samples to bring back for geologists. And he decided he didn't have enough material and there was some extra space in the box. So he's like, oh, I'll just shovel some soil in. So he just shoveled some basically moon dirt uh, in, into his collection box. And John Wood from the Smithsonian um, is looking at little tiny um, sort of white pebbles in that dirt. And he found that there's this type of rock called an anorthosite. Um, and anorthosite is really interesting because it forms um, from molten rock, from molten rock that crystallizes. And he developed, he realized that at some point the moon would have had to be covered in this kind of magma ocean. And the anorthosite crystallized out of it and floated on top, like icebergs almost. You have these like floating white rocks. Um, and that is actually you know, helped give rise to the giant impact hypothesis. But it wasn't until subsequent missions where we got, you know, better samples, bigger samples. I mean, Wood was working on with these little teeny tiny anorthosites, very, very small little white rocks. Um, and when researchers went back after, or astronauts went back afterward, they got much better samples of anorthosite um, that were able to really fill out the whole picture. Right. We should say that, I mean, the giant impact uh, theory um, not only explains where the moon came from, came from, but kind of explains or at least sets up a certain amount of conditions that make the Earth what it what it is. The Earth wouldn't be what it is right now. I mean, th this was uh, a giant planet uh, that struck 4.5 billion years ago, right? Yeah, and we think, I mean, we don't really, one of the big questions we have about the giant impact hypothesis is like, well, where is the evidence of the giant planet? They call it Thea, the impactor. Mm -hmm. Um was a, the, the mother of the moon in, in Greek myth. And, um, and, we, and we don't see the chemical fingerprint. So maybe Thea is mixed in with Earth, and that's why we don't see Thea's chemical fingerprint. I mean, there's still these kind of lingering questions. But there's no question that without the moon, Earth would not look the way it is today. I mean, the moon um, is uh, credited with causes the tides on Earth, which is a huge part of the way you know, ecosystems work um, and the oceans work. The moon is also credited with keeping the Earth from wobbling too much on its axis, which probably helps keep our planet kind of relatively stable. 
Um, so we, ha- we have a lot to be thankful for that, you know, Theo smashed into us um, all the time ago. Uh, so, uh, Sarah, short, short time left, but is there a specific thing uh, as we look at these uh, samples that have been withheld, you know, on the premise that you, you, you only get one chance to make a first impression, you only get one chance to look at something uh, in, in a pure state for the first time? Is there, are there a set of things that we're trying to find out? Yeah, so the big question that sort of can only be asked once um, is what are the gases that are inside these samples? So two of the pristine samples are these vacuum-sealed tubes that have never been opened. Um, And one of the questions we have about the moon is what is the condition of volatiles? Um, These are things that easily turn to gas, like water and oxygen. Um, How do they work? Where are they stored? Um, You know, how do they interact with the rocks? And so... When scientists open these vacuum-sealed tubes for the first time, they're going to have a very momentary opportunity to test for those volatiles. Um, And they're practicing, they're going to spend months practicing before they finally deploy that experiment. Um, It might not even be until next year. Um, But that is sort of of one of the many questions that they're going to be asking from these pristine rocks. All right. Well, listen, Sarah Kaplan, a science reporter for The Washington Post, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, and if we figure out uh, all the answer to those questions, uh, we'll absolutely have Sarah Kaplan uh, come back. Sarah Kaplan has no relation, by the way, to the best of our knowledge, to uh, Bitsy Kaplan, the senior producer for the Colin McEnroe show and uh, also the producer of this particular episode. So um, as we're heading out here, I quickly want to say you can get in touch with us. Well, you can get in touch with me. You can write just to Colin, email at Colin, C-O-L-I-N, at WNPR.org. Or uh, you may tweet us. Many people do tweet us. I was tweeting us during the Blumenthal interview because I was taped. I didn't have anything to do. Uh, So that's at WNPR Colin. We stopped seeing that, you know, and as a result, people have stopped tweeting at us. All right. Thanks, Doris, uh, for the music and for all the good times. It's a lovely day. If you've got something that must be done.